0: This episode of GT, the podcast is supported by Alcon. This is Ike Ahmed. And I'm Arsham Shebani, And we want to welcome you to GT, the podcast. We're bringing this to you together with BMC and Glaucoma Today.
1: To offer audible insights into current topics in glaucoma care.
0: Presented by the authors of our latest, most read GT articles. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of Survey Says with Dr. Paul Singh, a special edition of GT, the podcast, in which Dr. Singh presents a real patient case from his practice and asks his guests to weigh in on how they would manage it. Today's episode features Dr. Annalisa Erosimina from the AREN Eye Associates in Miami and Dr. Lorraine Preventure from the Cincinnati Eye Institute in Cincinnati. First, the panel will discuss how they would treat the patient in question and later they find out how their colleagues would approach treatment based on the results of a poll of Glaucoma Today's audience conducted on social media. In terms of the target IOP and preferred treatment, how do the different opinions match up? Tune in to Survey Says with Paul Singh. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode
1: of Survey Says. My name is Paul Singh. I'm a glaucoma specialist out in southeastern Wisconsin, and I'm honored and privileged and excited to talk to two amazing educators and glaucoma specialists and just awesome people. Uh, Down in Florida, the one and only Annalisa Arosimina. How are you? Nice. I'm very happy. Glad to have you here. I'm so pumped to talk to you as well. And, of course, in the Midwest, from Ohio, coming to us down out there is Lorraine Proventure. What's up, Lorraine?
2: Hey, Paul, thanks
1: for having me. Oh, so pumped. I'm so excited. Thank you both for joining tonight. I know we have a busy schedule, of course, and a lot going on, but I-, I love this this type of podcast because to me, it's fun to share, obviously, a case with both of you to hear your thoughts and how you'd kind of just not only just, uh, you know, kind of manage this kind of patient, but also talk about what the poll says. You know, the, the idea of this show and this kind of podcast is to talk about what we would do, but also hear what our colleagues would do. So we kind of, sent a polling question uh, with a case to both LinkedIn as well as Twitter. And we asked patients, we asked our co- colleagues out there after sending a case out there to respond to a couple of questions. One is, you know, what was the target pressure after this case and how would they treat this patient as we'll talk about. And so what we'll do first is discuss amongst ourselves how we would discuss this case, how we would manage this case. And then we'll talk about what the polling says and then we'll go from there. And so I'm going to start us out by just Describing the case again for everybody, so we're all on the same page. And I'm going to ask you guys some questions about what your thoughts are on this case. So, this is a 76 year old Caucasian uh, female with a history of cataract surgery uh, 10 years ago, with a diagnosis of POAG for the last seven years. Um, she's referred to you since she's been slowly progressing with a decreased RNFL and sort of an early nasal defect on visual field. Last couple of visual fields have confirmed this. Uh, but before that, she was actually pre parametric, had healthy fields overall. So, she's progressing. Uh, but she's on four. Classes of generic medications. You have PGA, she's on beta blocker, CEI, uh, and Vermonidine, alpha agonist. Her T match is not super high, but upper 20s, but she's been treated on these medications and she's been ranging in the upper teens, but what, six or so? Millimeters of fluctuation, so kind of coming and going up and down. And her hysteresis is kind of low. I'm a big fan of using coronal hysteresis, but kind of low 8.6 in right eye, 9.2 left eye. And her CCTs or picometry is in the middle 540 or so, nothing that earth shattering, but her low hysteresis does concern me. Uh, Cupping is 0.6 within slight inferior nasal sloping. The key is she complains of fluctuating vision all the time. Every time she blinks, her vision comes and goes, a little bit of watering and tearing. And she has an issue of cost. That's why she's on generics. And every time she comes in, she's like, do you have any samples? Do you have any samples? So cost is an issue. So again, fluctuating IOP, upper teens progressing, 76-year-old with a history of cataract surgery. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Lorraine. What are your thoughts just in general? Just give me a gestalt of what you're thinking of this kind of patient and what, what concerns you right away off the bat.
2: Right. Yeah. I, I think, well, just kind of going through the history, like you mentioned, she's 76 and she's pseudophagic. So she's really not that old. Patients these days could live 10, 20 more years. So you could be treating her glaucoma for a very long time. Um, she is progressing, but she still has relatively mild disease. So that's something I'm keeping in mind. I, I don't want to put her through too much this early in her disease process. I don't want the treatment to be worse than the, than the disease. You mentioned a lot of her risk factors, but um, her adherence or potential adherence issues are a major concern. So one thing I'd want to try and tease out with her right up front is, can she take any meds at all? Like, is this something where if we simplified her regimen or reduced her medications, she'd do better or be more adherent? Or is she somebody who really, no matter what we're going to do, is not going to be able to take any medications? And so that will really change how I choose treatment.
1: So let me ask you, uh, Annalisa, you know, from from a medication burden, you know, four classes on generics. I mean, do you you feel in general that any one of our patients truly can stay on four classes generics for any amount of time, more than like a couple of months?
3: I think it doesn't matter whether there are generics or not. I think four classes is a lot. I mean, we're talking six, eight drops per eye per day. I mean, it's huge. And that's the reason her vision fluctuates so much. And that's the reason she's most likely not taking them. I think the major issue on her, it's not the pressure. Her fluctuation is because she's not being compliant. She has a buzzword. My vision fluctuates. Which means I'm not taking my medicine because the medicine is bothering me.
1: Let's talk about that. I want to I really get into that because to me ocular surface disease and i've said this before in a few other podcasts but i can't stress this enough ocular surface disease is probably the biggest comorbidity i face in medical management of glaucoma and the biggest barrier to compliance for me personally outside of cost and other things like that and i think it's because again like you mentioned they focus on their symptoms right there's very few other diseases in the eye that have as many associated symptoms as dry eye tearing burning pain redness photophobia and fluctuating vision as well and i want to ask you lorraine You know, as Annalisa mentioned, dry eye is probably a big issue and fluctuating vision is a a, a symptom of that. Do you find, I mean, you know, a lot of of our colleagues in glaucoma specifically are like, I don't have time to diagnose. I don't have all the different modalities, all the different diagnostics, right? Do you need a lot of diagnostics to, to document or to diagnose dry eye based upon symptoms? Or how do you diagnose that? How do you kind of evaluate people who come in with fluctuating vision?
2: I would say no. I mean, I think, like you mentioned, a short history, listening to the patient's complaints and taking the time to do that, which doesn't take long at all. You can tease out that they're having ocular surface disease, visual instability, and then something really simple, just looking at the lids, looking at the tear film, we're going to put fluorescein in their eye anyways, if we're checking their pressure. And so I think it, it takes very little time at all. Now, I think you could argue that more diagnostics are important if you're going to do really specific or high-level treatment like a lot of our dry eye colleagues do, then you want to have more targeted things you're looking for. But no, I think to diagnose it and acknowledge it and then tailor your glaucoma therapy based on that, I think there's no excuse, really.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And, and, and Annalisa, in terms of dry eye, I mean, do, do you... Acknowledge it with the patient. I mean, how much of the just acknowledgement of the patient to say, Hey, this is why you're having those symptoms. Does that change their ability to stay compliant or understand what's happening?
3: Sometimes I'm a little, depending on the degree of glaucoma, it's you get surgery or you put up with, um, or you go blind. So when you're at that level of disease, you don't really have a lot of choices and treating the dry eye would be another drop. So at that point I move more towards surgery when they are end-stage or highly severe glaucoma. But on a patient like ours, I think that just acknowledging she has it and removing some of the causative agents will make a big difference.
1: And how much does preservative-free? So let's say, I mean, we'll we'll get to the treatment and and the options and what we decide in a second. But in general, in terms of preservative-free meds, do you think preservative-free drops make a big difference in patients who have dry eye? Uh, or is it the dry eye inherently? Because a lot of our patients inherently have a dry eye state, MGD, and just come in with other risk factors like postmenopausal and have you know, systemic antihypertensive meds and you know, all this stuff. What do you think of that? Do you use preservative-free meds, and do you think it has a significant benefit?
3: I'll take that. I think it has a significant benefit. Sadly, coverage, it's a huge factor. I mean, when you try to put a patient on preservative-free medication, Their burden goes up, they cannot afford it, or their insurance runs out and they end up in the donut hole at the end of the year. So it's very hard to be able to use it as much as we would like to.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's a really good point. And yeah, I mean, there are some Medicaid. We have preservative free, you know, obviously versions of PGAs. You have lower concentration of BAK, PGAs out there as well. So I think we have the opportunity there. But you're right, a lot of times we don't think about it. Or by the time they have significant symptoms, just reducing the BAK alone at that time may not be enough sometimes. And so we have to address the underlying dry eye as well as reducing their drop burden. You know, also, I think it's important to recognize to me, and, and how much does, so if they're having dry eye and they're not, taking the medications what are your thoughts on fluctuating iop what's your comfort level in terms of the amount of fluctuation of iop that you're comfortable dealing with where you say "Whoa, this is too much how many what What? like four millimeters six millimeters two? Lorraine, what are your thoughts on fluctuating iop
2: fluctuating iop makes me very uncomfortable so say they're up one visit and you caught it up and then you say well let's recheck it the next visit and it's down I still, you know, you might use that as an excuse to continue to monitor them or to proceed, but really it makes me nervous because you know that it's fluctuating and for whatever reason we, you know, it is fluctuating, maybe it's adherence, maybe their disease causes them to fluctuate, maybe they have natural diurnal fluctuation. That just still we know is bad for glaucoma control. So I don't like to see it, um, regardless of the reason, and it usually does prompt me to want to do something to flatten their fluctuation, whether that's laser or surgery.
1: How much fluctuation, Annalisa, are you okay with? Two, four, six? Any thoughts, or is just gestalt?
3: To me, it depends on the reason. If I have a patient that is fluctuating because they are not using their medicine, I'll give them a chance of counseling and trying to understand where they're stable and understanding what they need to do to. Prevent this fluctuation. If it is real fluctuation, meaning the urinal fluctuation from their disease, it even at three or four, I'm very uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, you know, I I think that's something we're learning more and more now. And you know, I think we have great data out there. You know, back when I trained at Duke, my My attending, one of my mentors, Sanjay S. Rani, did some great work, even with Goldman Visual Fields, talking about fluctuating IOPs, you know, greater than four to six millimeters of mercury can be a significant risk factor for progression. Uh, You look at AGES, the advanced glaucoma interventional study, showing us more than three millimeters of mercury fluctuation over the course of the the study, higher risk of progression. But now we have, I think, in the MIGS world too, which in the SLT world with light study, the, the Horizon trials, we do realize that now independently, drop burden. Is an independent risk factor for progression. Like, I mean, again, we beat a dead horse with the whole light trial. You know, Gus Guzzard's great work out there, but despite the same efficacy between SLT and, and drops, despite the same IOP reduction, those on SLT who needed less drops had less chance of progression, less need of incisional surgery, visual fields were more stable. Horizon trial, which is a Hydra study, showed us also five years that if even if you match the IOPs, less patients had visual field progression. ICOM had presented that last year, and even the need for progressing to incisional surgery was significantly less than the people who had the, hy- the hydrus and the cataract. And again, drop burden reduction was a big potential cause of that significant benefit. So I think we're finally seeing now more and more data supporting that independently getting people who of medications, whether it's because of forgetfulness, because of cost, because of dry eye. I think we finally see that there's definitely a benefit of that. Last thing I want to talk about with in terms of dry eye issues is do you guys find or do you feel, and this is more of a theoretical, And but there are some data sets out there, that if you have an ocular surface disease, which we know is inflammatory, there's inflammation as a cause or a result, that there's some effect on IOP? Do you feel like inflammation itself on the surface because of dry eye could affect IOP? Anyone have a want to comment on that?
2: I think we see it. I mean, well, there's multiple mechanisms potentially at play, but when somebody has a severe bromonidine allergy, a lot of times they'll come in with high ele- elevated pressure. And so you stop the bromonidine and you would think the pressure would get worse, but it actually gets better. And so it, whether that comes from intraocular inflammation or which we can see, you know, you can see KP, some cell, um, or if it's surface disease, I don't know, but I
3: think that's really interesting. So I, w- I would buy it.
1: Yeah. I mean, analysts, any thoughts on dry eye and pressure control?
3: I think that if we don't control the inflammation in the surface of the eye, the future of the glaucoma patient is doomed. Even for surgery, for drug tolerance, you, it has to be treated and it has to be controlled. Whether it inherently increases the pressure without a degree of uveitis and traveculitis, as Lorraine said, I'm not 100% sure. I would like to see a little more on that.
1: Yeah, I know. That's a great point. You brought it with Brumontine allergies. And there are data sets out there showing us that with chronic inflammation on the surface of the eye, you can get a level of trabeculitis as well as even the collective channels can actually become narrow as well. So I think there's some level. I can't give you great, you know, like in every case, but there's probably some level of of inflammation that could be affecting their stability and their IOP reduction. Again, so just, again, something to think about, something in my back of my mind as well. So going to this patient again, going back to this, our lady here, last thing I want to talk about is hysteresis. Do you guys both do hysteresis in your clinics or do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I do not. I don't either, but I think this case is awesome because it illustrates that this patient, you know, you could be reassured by their CCT. And then you have hysteresis there that makes you think twice about maybe this, their disease progression. So I, I don't, but I would love to have one. And I think this is a great case illustrating why.
1: Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, again, I won't take too much time here, but I'm, as a lot of people know, I'm a big fan of hysteresis. I know Nate Radcliffe and Philippe Madero, Medeiros, and Duke and Javinder Grover and others have done some great work and great articles online, um, just talking about the relative uh, importance of, of really progression. And even diagnosis where hysteresis independently is more powerful than even CCT. And again, long story short, it's looking at the biomechanical properties, a shock absorbing ability basically of the eye. And so the higher the shock absorbing ability, the better it can think of it as withstanding pressure fluctuations. The lower the hysteresis, the lower the number, anything below 10 and a half or 10, let's say, is not good. Uh, and that means they're less pliable, less ability to withstand pressure fluctuations. Think of it, that's how I think of it at least, bad shock absorbing. And so this patient uh, has a low hysteresis, both eyes, right eye, more than left. And so you're right, there's many studies that show that you can have normal pachymetry, normal CCT, and have a low hysteresis, which independently can be a risk factor. Example, ocular hypertensive patient. If they have a high hysteresis with the pressure of 25, see it back in a year. Don't even worry about it, especially if, they, obviously if they're ocular hypertensive, healthy, fields, nerves. If they have a low hysteresis with a pressure of 25, even if they have healthy nerves and fields, I'm treating that patient. That's how powerful to me in my practice and how it helps me make decisions as well. So yes, this is a patient with low hysteresis, normal biochemistry, progressive. So let's get to let's get to kind of how you would kind of set her target pressures now and what you would do to obtain that. So anyone want to comment what your thoughts, Annalisa, what are your thoughts on her target pressures? What would you want her to be at?
3: I wouldn't I wouldn't mind her being in the mid teens. As long as it's stable, I wouldn't mind. I think she could tolerate a relatively, you know, higher pressure if she was stable. So for me, it would be a mid-teens.
1: Mid-teens. Lorraine, what are your thoughts? Mid-teens also, anything else? Higher or lower?
2: I think initially I was thinking mid-teens, and I think that's a safe bet. But you bring up a good point. If we can just stabilize her pressures, She's still got pretty mild disease, moderate at best. I think she may be somebody who would stabilize in the high teens, even. And you don't go, you don't know that without time. But I think mid to high teens would be good. Mid teens is very safe.
1: Yeah, and let's, let's talk about that because you know when we talk about our options, right? What do we do next? When we define success of our procedures or our change, whatever we decide to do, you know, you're right. I think mid teens to me makes a lot of sense. You can't go wrong with you know middle teens. But, you know what if she is let's say 17 or 18 after whatever we decide to do but she's stable and we decrease that six millimeter record fluctuation she has less surface issues she's more happy she can afford her whatever she's doing you know does that is that enough and so I think that to me it's a combination of getting her pressures down but also keeping it more from fluctuation the independent risk factor of fluctuation is important so uh, I think it's right and I'd you know, love to hear what you guys would do so Both you think middle teens, maybe upper teens if they're stable. So how would you get there and how would you stabilize her IOP in long term?
3: I'll take that one. I think that she had a mid-20s high IOP, but that's seven years ago. Since then, we don't really know where she's really at. Most likely that plus six in her fluctuation is when she hasn't taken anything and that less drop. You know, that drop of six in her IOPs when she took her medicines. So in the better eye, I might stop everything and see where my baseline is. Planning for an SLT or for um, implantables, I would give her a Durista.
1: Okay, so you'd say S for you right away, an SLT or maybe a drug delivery like Dorista would be a good first treatment for her. Or, I mean, next treatment rather for her.
3: That would be my, I would stop some of the medicines, see where I am. If she's hanging at low 20s off, I would gladly give her those two things and get her down.
1: Seriously, you know, let's talk about that because that is so important. You know, we start to add, add, add. And I remember when I was a fellow. That was like the biggest thing. Do not just add, you know, find out what that one drug is doing first before you add a second one. And so, you know, would you guys do kind of reverse trials where you say, hey, you know what? The patients has got dry eye. I think compliance is an issue. She's not very advanced. She's more mild to moderate, like you were saying, Lorraine. Would you guys just stop two or three or all of her medications, see what happens first?
3: I would give her a trial. I will see her in a couple of weeks. I wouldn't give her a long follow-up. Usually what I do in my clinic is that I tell her and I say, we're going to book you for an SLT. And the day she comes for the SLT, that eye has been off medication for those two weeks. She gets the SLT and if everything goes good, I stop the medicines in the worst eye and do an SLT also. So I give her, in the better eye, the benefits of being without for those two, three weeks between my seeing the patient and doing the laser.
1: Lorraine, how about you? I mean, what are your thoughts on on that kind of reverse trial and seeing how she would do without drops before you decide what to do next?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. I probably don't do it as much as I should. I'll often stop maybe one, if it's if they're pointing out one drug that's really bothering them um, and see kind of what their pressure does. Cause I'm surprised all the time how often you stop it and it doesn't really change a whole lot. Um, but yeah, I don't do it routinely, but I think that's a really good point is see where they are baseline. I would guess, you know, if she's, you know, just hypothesis wise, if she has been on all these meds and she started high, she, she could go even higher than her initial T max, um, just because of her presumed outflow atrophy over time from all this aqueous suppression and inflammation. But I think it's a really interesting thing to think about.
1: And the and the longevity, the time she's been on let's say all these topical drops, Right? does that change your thought process on kind of resistance outflow collector channels like kind of the health of her outflow system?
2: It does. I think I'm less optimistic that her natural outflow system is you know, her conventional outflow system I should say is intact and functioning well. Um, just because you do things like you'll you'll do a MIGS and you'll take every you take off a bunch of meds at once, and oftentimes they'll go high. Sometimes we blame it on steroids, sometimes not. But I think I'd be a little concerned given the duration she's been on treatment for. I guess seven years now, and she has ocular surface disease.
1: Basically, Annalisa was saying SLT with or without maybe doing so. Let's like say do SLT, and the pressures aren't low enough. You maybe add maybe a dorista on top of the SLT. So that combination of SLT and Darista, maybe get you down, that'd be a good option for you. Uh, Lorraine, what are your thoughts on what you would do next for this patient?
2: I think it really depends on the patient and kind of the sense you're getting from them. So if this is somebody who is up for multiple, like smaller interventions to try and do the bare minimum or to start stepwise is kind of how I explain it to patients, then I think that's a really reasonable approach. But if it's somebody who you get a sense is you're not going to have a lot of wiggle room for multiple treatments over time then i'd be a little more aggressive i think i'd also try like i mentioned in the beginning to get a sense of like how many drops they can really take can you take one at night can you take none and do i need to try and get you entirely off of medications and depending on what they say with that that's you know if they say they can't really tolerate much at all then i'd really go for something more like a zen um if they can maybe tolerate one or we could do a dorista and an angle-based procedure, I think that's really reasonable to try as well because she's still relatively young with mild disease. So if I can wait to do a subconscious surgery for later, I think that's ideal. But I, I, I usually fill out the patient in this situation.
3: Well, what's your thought on subconjunctival surgery when the conjunctiva is so inflamed? I, I think they, they usually don't work as good as when you are able to quiet them down.
1: Uh, I think that's a really good point. I mean, we we have to be a, a aggressive with reducing the drop burden before the surgery. I, I'm a bl- big fan of using like Lodopredinol, using latifedegrast or cyclosporin. Take them off the glaucoma drops. Put them on if I have to put them on like a acetazolamide for a couple of weeks if I have to just calm their right eye down. Drug delivery is a great. This is a great where, where great place where drug delivery works uh, to help you know get that pressure down. Get them off the PGA, even maybe a couple other medications until they have that surgery. So I think you're right. We have to address that. It doesn't have to be for months and months and months, but at least just calm that cascade down. So that way you don't got to go in the surgery with an inflamed eye with that whole inflammatory cascade going on. It takes a few weeks to kind of stop it all, right? And so even if they're not perfectly quiet, at least getting that suppression set, I think is really important. So yeah, I think you. this is where I would use a lot of those drug deliveries and SLTs initially, and then just then set them up to get them off of meds. And then if it's not enough, do a surgery as well. So I think it's, you know it's great points. The other thing I was going to ask you guys about: Would there be some role to saying, okay, well, let's maybe change? You know, and here's where I guess there's a question: Does brand name versus generic makes you know have a difference? You know, do are there if you say, okay, I'm gonna switch them to like a one of these newer brand name medications with, let's say, generic. I mean, take them off the of generics, put on brand name PGA slash a PGA combo, and maybe a combo, um, you know, preservative free medication. Would there be any role for that? You think it's, eh, with this patient, probably not going to help.
3: Well, you also went from eight drops a day to three drops a day with that switch, Mm -hmm. which compliance might greatly improve. I get a sense that this patient is truly a non-compliant patient, more than an outflow resistance. She was controlled for most of the time in her glaucoma, and she just went out of whack in the last few visits, that's why the patient was referred. And I think that, you know, that extra drop took her off the edge. So I would really try to scale down medication a lot and try to see if I can give her a chance. I can always restart them.
1: Lorraine, you, you have some of your hand up. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, well, I, I mean, I think you're probably right, um, Annalisa. But one other thing we haven't talked about is um and this patient, drops are the enemy, right? This patient has blackballed the drops and probably hates them. But uh, one thing we haven't talked about is compounded medication. So that's occasionally something I will try and do because somebody like this, you can put all of their morning drops in one bottle, one drop, and all of their evening drops in one bottle, one drop. And usually when I tell patients about this, they seem thrilled by the idea. So it takes a little work to get it set up. Um, And yeah, cost is an issue. I see you doing the money money thing. But usually it's actually not that different when you add up all their individual bottles that they're paying for. And the bottles are often like a larger size that are easier for patients to use that have arthritis or have dexterity issues. So there's a lot of benefits. It does take some investment, though, to get it set up.
1: That's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, we've used them. You know, there's different companies that make it. One's obviously, Infirmis makes them as well. And, you know, yeah, you can do three in one in the morning and four in one at nighttime. And the are free bottles, which is good. And they have a surfactant, a Paloxone 4 or 7, which they have potency data, which shows they have, you still get individual comp- uh, efficacy of the medication. So yeah, I think there's a role for that for sure, especially, you know, I've had patients who didn't want to have surgery, already had SLT, had a mixed procedure in the past. Next step is, you know, kind of a subconj. I'm like, you know what, let's just try those... Th- those kind of compounded pharmacies, and and actually it works too for those patients. So I think you're absolutely right. So drugs are always an option if we need to. And I think just understanding that we have to limit the number of meds, less be a K load. I think those are all things that we have to be aware of if we're going to stay on medications. So let's go. Let's go for the sake of time here to what the audience said and our colleagues out there in the the world of Twitter and LinkedIn. <laughs> and so let's look at let's look at um. Let's look at LinkedIn first here, and I'm not sure if you guys can see this as well. But we found we asked our colleagues out there what would our target pressure be, and we got majority of patient doctors saying low to mid teens. Actually, 76% said that. About 10% said upper teens. Very few said 20%, and very rare said sub 10. So really, low to mid teens was was kind of the key. And I think mid teens makes sense. I'm not sure if I'd think low is necessary in my opinion, but I think you know mid teens makes a lot of sense. But again this idea that maybe upper teens could be okay if we limited her fluctuation, got her more compliant. We may be able to get away with upper teens and just keep it stable. I think there's stability of IOP, you know, even doing like eye oh, care home or something just to see kind of how her pressure's going up and down would be an interesting thing as well. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that makes sense? We, we kind of talked about that. And then we have the, um, the Twitter folks uh, who also said for the majority of them, low to mid teens as well. So I think Twitter and LinkedIn world's are are co are coexisting nicely, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> uh, and then, I, I want to get down to the um to the actual treatment options. So for our colleagues in the LinkedIn world, uh, we have a split really between SLT slash drug delivery and conventional MIGS. Now, I'm going to s- say that what if this patient didn't ha- already had an SLT? Hypothetically, would that change? you know, would you change your thought process and saying, let me go straight to commercial makeup"? Would you do a repeat SLT? And how do you, how do you utilize repeat SLT in your practices? Uh, Annalisa, you're ready to say something. Go ahead.
3: The question is, when did she have the previous SLT?
1: And what was her initial you, response?
3: Yeah. I mean, if you tell me, oh, I had this laser, you know, right when I got diagnosed, well, I'll give you a shot of not having to go in the eye. Um, if she's had it recently within six months and we didn't get a result, then why why repeat it yet again? I give them a shot if it worked the first time or it partially worked the first time and I would repeat it.
1: Lorraine, what about you? Do you feel like, do you repeat SLT in general and how do you decide if it's worth it or not? Same Same principles?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's situations where it's a no-brainer to repeat it, right? Where they had an initial response that lasted for a while and it's wearing off um, and an initial good response, I should say. Um, but there are some patients where you're, you're looking down and their treatment options and the next steps are, are bigger steps and say they had an initial short duration of response to SLT, I'll say, let's just give it another round. And it's so easy for patients that, and there's some data to support that, but there's so some patients that, don't even remember you did an SLT because it's that easy to have done. So it's pretty easy to talk to patients about having a
3: second round before we go on to something more invasive.
1: Are you both SLT uh, primary therapy fans?
3: When I get a patient that is primary therapy, I'm a tertiary glaucoma specialist. I don't think I've seen that many virgin eyes lately.
1: (laughs) By the time they get to you, it's like, oh, yeah. How about you? How about you, Lorraine? Are you a primary SLT fan? Or do you get a chance to do that? Or are you also tertiary to the point where you don't get him?
2: I'm lucky in that I got to build a practice at a satellite. So I do get some virgin eyes coming through my clinic. And absolutely, I love it as primary. Um, but I also have a place I practice where there's, it's more complex. So I get a mixture, but I think it's great first line. And I think it's great anywhere along the the treatment algorithm, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, it makes so much sense. I mean, it's, it's the most physiologic way, in my opinion, to address IOP and, and our resistance, right? And I think, it, and again, I've talked about this all the time, and my, my view is it gives you a little bit, in my opinion, of a diagnostic uh, kind of uh, value, where if it doesn't work, because it works at a level of trabecular meshwork, does it tell you that maybe the resistance is beyond TM? Maybe it's in the conventional, I mean, in the canal or distal, we just don't know. I think SLT is a great option. I just want everyone out there, I, mean, I think we, we still underutilize SLT, even though with the light trial and all the good stuff a few years back, we still see not everybody, not meeting less than 50% of doctors out there.
3: I have to say that that's one of the things I really wish we could teach strongly in school. We should actually make people understand that they should start with SLT. I don't think we've been able to deliver the message outside of the glaucoma world with enough strength and that's on all of us
1: it's so, it's so important i mean it, it makes so much sense and and, and earlier treat it, the better chance you have of maintaining a healthier outflow maintaining flow through the canal preventing collapse all that good stuff we talked about um so SLE is a great option but we have a lot of colleagues in fact in the twitter world going back to our, our polls here the twitter world actually is a little bit different the twitter colleagues have uh, really kind of felt yeah, 50% said SLT drug delivery, but there's about 25% who said subconj bypass. So interesting. Let's talk about that because we have conventional MIGs and we have a lot of canal dilation. We have a lot of, you know, goniotomy options now as well. And of course, now we have the approval, which I think is really exciting for uh, stenting, the infinite trial. Those got the uh, three stents for the eye stent have been approved. I was part of that study. We found that actually for MTMT, 30% 30% reduction in about 70% of patients. We had a huge huge reduction of IOP in these MTMT patients with three stents, even people who are refractory and even those who had previous glaucoma surgery like like trabs, we had a significant reduction, 20% reduction in about 50 plus percent of patients. So we know know that we can reopen sort so to speak the conventional pathway. But with that said, we have the sole subconjunctival bypass. So would you guys pull the trigger and when would you pull the trigger on something like a subconscious bypass trab or let's say a Zen type of procedure? Would that be out of, of, someone who's mild to moderate, would that be too out of the question for you guys?
3: It's not that it's out of the question. I'm not sure in this particular patient with the surface disease she would have. And and I'm not sure if that would be my first choice. I think if she fails one drop SLT and an implantable, then we would be discussing uh, uh, some of those other options. I
2: mean, I usually am very conservative. Let me throw that out there. In, in real life, I would probably do what you're saying and try, and try something small first, especially if I'm just meeting the patient. So offer them something less invasive. If it works for a year or so, great. But I think seeing what the Twitter responses say about target pressure. So most people want mid to low teens. The vignette alludes to the fact that she can't tolerate any topicals. So if you really think she can't take topicals, and she has a mid to low teens target, then yeah, subconj filtration is the way to do it. And it would probably keep her there for a long time because I'm arguing she doesn't even need a mid to low teens target. you know. So she need, if she needs a flat high teens, I think something like a Zen would probably keep her below that range or at that range for a long time. And of course, you would want to do preoperative management and she's mild enough that if you take her off her meds and she runs high for a little bit, you know, she's probably not going to sustain a whole lot of damage just from that period waiting, prepping for surgery. So I think a lot of these options are valid, but I could see the role for subconj bypass surgery, especially if she can't tolerate medications long-term, like no medications.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point. And where I would distinct draw the distinction here in my my, my hands um, I've done a lot of mild to moderate patients with ZENs. I think you're absolutely right. I think the higher the target pressure, the better chance we have of achieving that. And you know, we know middle teens are well within the wheelhouse of ZEN off of meds. Where I would just pull the distinction is if I took this patient off of meds and let's say we realize that you know she really does need, it's not just compliance, she really does need three or four meds, then then a subconscious is probably a good option because really conventional MIGs, yeah, you can get them off of two, maybe three, but you're probably not going to get her off of all meds. Just in general, especially if patients, let's say, are compliant. So if I have a compliant patient and we're on, let's say, combos and brand names and are still on three, four meds, probably to get them off of meds, a subconscious give you a better chance getting off of meds in a conventional pathway. For someone like this, though, because we think compliance is an issue and dry eye is an issue potentially, this is where I would probably do the conventional MEGS route first um, or obviously after, let's say, potential SLT. uh, And then if that didn't work, telling a patient, look. We have a lot of options. And my spiel to my patients is, this is a journey, Mrs. Smith. We're going to do whatever we can to maintain the highest quality of life, the safest way to get those pressures down to protect you from getting getting worse. But we have options. So don't worry if, let's say, this doesn't work, we can do something different. But at this point, I think this is the best option for you. So setting a stage to doc to our patients, that we're not going to only have one option. We may employ multiple different procedures over the lifespan, and that's okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on that and how you educate your patients on this? How would you educate her if you decided, hey, I'm going to do SLT or I'm going to do conventional MIGs? How do you educate her on what's going to happen in the future?
2: Like you said in the very beginning, like we talked about acknowledging her issues and, like, appreciating her honesty is really important. And then like you said, it's a playbook or some people have described it as a a book with chapters and we're only on chapter one. I think I heard that recently. Uh, I thought that was pretty good, but I do tell patients that we have a lot of tools available to us nowadays and that we can start small and stepwise and do everything we can to improve her quality of life while still controlling her disease. But if these smaller things don't work, then we would have to go on and do something like bigger surgeries. And I say, and even if we do have to do the bigger surgeries, those are getting better these days, you know, those are safer. So I emphasize safety. I acknowledge their, what they're going through outside the clinic, because I think it would be incredibly hard to have glaucoma and persist with these therapies and come to come to the doctor every three to four months. I think that that's really, really hard. So yeah, stepwise is great. And I think it's nice that we have the luxury to do that nowadays. So I try and Set the expectations, like you said, so that they're not disappointed if the smaller things don't work.
3: And Lorraine, I loved um, what you said is that you want to also talk to the patient. If a patient is only going to give me one shot, and if only I get one chance of getting it down, I may not go for a small procedure. I may not try the canal based. I may go or even more aggressive in that patient that will not give me another chance. And if the patient is open to a stepwise approach, I do believe is, what did a patient tell me? So, dog it's like making a cake. You need many ingredients. So, you know, you give me a little drop and a little this. And and I'm like, exactly, you got it, baby. So it. it, it depends a lot on them.
1: I love it. Man, I want to talk more about this stuff. This is so much. So, we could do a whole other hour section on what conventional MIGS procedure would you do, right? I mean, I mean, combine viscodilation with a little otomy. Maybe now we have these stents with hoops. Who knows, combine them. I mean, I'm a big fan of combination. But in this case, I'd probably, if I would do conventional, probably do a little bit of otomy with this one too. Man, there's so many cool things, but I know we want to stay kind of relatively on time. So um, with that said, this was awesome. You guys brought up some fantastic pearls. Uh, I think just, you know, the surface of the eye, compliance related issues, how do you educate patients? I mean, so many awesome pearls as well. But thank you to both Annalisa and Lorraine for taking the time to spend with me, educating me and my colleagues and our colleagues out there. And um, I want to thank all of you for listening to us for the last 40 minutes here. Uh, And hopefully we'll have another episode coming soon here for Survey Says. But thank you very much. Enjoy. And uh, we'll hopefully see you guys soon. Thanks,
0: everybody. Thank you for tuning into this episode of GT the podcast. If you have any feedback or topic suggestions, find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on GT the podcast.